Vince, there's something I need to tell you. It, it's going to be hard for you to hear. What is it, Gloria? You know you can tell me anything. The following program may contain material that is not appropriate for all audiences. Damn you, Gloria. Damn you. This is the Carpe Diem Gamecast interview series. Joining us today, Ross Peyton. Hey there, folks. This is Dan with the Carpe Diem Gamecast. Thank you for joining me for episode three of our interview series. First things first, I'd like to thank uh, Eric at Prismatic Tsunami for the explicit tag that's on the front of this podcast. He did it at the drop of a hat just as a personal favor for me, so I appreciate that. Secondly, I wanted to do something involving horror gaming with the podcast in honor of Halloween, and the first name that came to mind was Ross Payton. Ross is a wealth of information and resources for horror gaming, so be sure to check the show notes for everything that we talk about. i got to tell you, by the time I got done with this interview, I had so many tabs open on my browser. I'm surprised the computer didn't shut down. With that, here's my conversation with Ross Payton. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the Carpe Diem Gamecast interview series, episode three. I've got uh, Ross Payton on the mics with me today. Ross, thanks for joining the show. Hi, this is Ross Payton with Rollblame Public Radio, and uh, I'm pleased to be here. This is my announcer voice, but uh, I'll, I'll I'll keep that off for the rest of the podcast, I know. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> so, Ross, for the couple of people who listen to my show that might not know who you are, can you um, give us what's stamped on the back of your geek card? Uh, yes, I'm a writer and a podcaster, most well-known for role-playing public radio and RPPR actual play, uh, two RPG podcasts. Uh, our role-playing public radio self-taught is gaming advice, interviews, reviews. Uh, it's co-hosted with Tom Church. And then there's RPPR actual play where we record game sessions that I or someone else that I know usually uh, run. And uh, we play a variety of systems from Dungeons and Dragons to Call of Cthulhu to Eclipse Phase to superhero games like Wild Talents. And uh, so we I also write. Uh, I've written a couple books for Arc Dream for the RPG Monsters and Other Childish Things. I wrote the books Curriculum Conspiracy and Road Trip. And more recently, I came out with a book called Zombies of the World, which is not technically a gaming product, but it's a fictional field guide to 20 different species of zombies, like uh, mummies and revenants and other undead things that are not vampires. And uh, it won several National Book Awards, so for including Best Humor at the... Uh, Benjamin Franklin Awards. So Benjamin Franklin Awards. So that's sort of my main background writing and podcasting. So you're also on a, another podcast called Unspeakable. Yes, I actually do. Uh, thank you for reminding me. <laughs> uh, that is the the podcast for the Unspeakable of the Call of Cthulhu magazine from Arc Dream and Pagan Publishing, and I do that with Shane Ivy, and we sort of rotate hosts and uh, other other people, uh, usually people who have written the Delta Green book, like Adam Scott Glancy from Bacon Publishing, Dennis Detwiller, uh, who also created the video game Prototype, and uh, John Scott Tynes, and 
yeah, we talk about Call of Cthulhu or, and all that fun stuff, horror, and uh, which I think is probably pretty appropriate for, for October. Very topical. Eleven months out of the year, you're just waiting for October. Pretty much, <laughs> uh, Zombie Appreciation Month. Yep. Now, your, your Zombies of the World book—that's your 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 biggest release at the moment, right? Yes. And uh, you want to you want to just get it right out of the way. Get them to let the listeners know where you can find that. Uh, yeah, the best place to go to get the book is zombiesoftheworld.com. There's actually a uh, zombie survival and risk analysis quiz where you can see how well you do in a zombie attack uh, by answering a couple questions. And uh, you can get a coupon for 10% off if you take the quiz. Uh, but you can get a PDF of the book. You can get it uh, in print. I'll sign it if you order it directly from me. You can also get it at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, drive through Fiction, a few other places. So, yeah, it's uh, zombiesoftheworld.com or, you know, you know, just Google it. You'll you'll be able to find it. Right. All right. One of your accomplishments is game designer. Yes. Um. We've had. Uh, you've released a game called Kill Splosion a while back. <laughs> yes, that was. Yeah, actually, uh, I re- released it earlier this year, and that was a ransom model game. So that was released for free uh, online. So you can get the PDF. It's killsplosion.roleplayingpublicradio.com, and, and it's PvP RPG, player versus player. Okay, I'll have links to all this stuff in the show notes if anybody's interested for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Kill Splosion, that's um, PvP, you said. Yeah. And it, it the name pretty much sums it up, right? Yeah, it's it's basically an homage to 1980s and 90s uh, action movies in particular. Very cheesy sort of you know things where people explode and are thrown out of windows and there's motorcycles and rocket launchers and machine guns and it's just... You're the badass trying to kill all the other badasses. So uh, it's a very, very simple premise, um, and uh, it's got some good feedback. But it was fun doing. It was my first standalone game. Okay. Uh, you mentioned it was a the a ransom model release. Yes. What exactly is that? Greg Stolze, came, uh, the guy who wrote Unknown Armies and the One Roll Engine, came up with the idea in the first place. But the basic idea is I will I have this game, this book, this novel, this whatever, but I'm going to hold it for ransom. If I raise enough money online, then I'll release it for free. And then everybody will get a copy and everybody will be, you know, for free. Uh, so, but if I don't raise the money, then I'll, I'll keep it. I'll hold, I'll keep holding it hostage. So, Last year I did a Kickstarter for, uh, I think I raised 2800 bucks, and so I released it, and uh, everybody got their own copy, um, their own PDF copy, and they could you know print it out and play with it and do whatever they wanted with it. So I was looking at the site, and it looks like you can print up this book and have it bound at like a FedEx or someplace like that. Yeah, I figured like 13 out 13 or $14, right? Yeah. Uh, you, you can do that, or you just print out your and staple it. I mean, right. it's about 60 pages, so um, it might that might be a little awkward. But yeah, you can print it up yourself. I haven't done a print-on-demand copy version because I don't, I, you know, it's only 60 pages. I don't think it really needs that. And uh, Or you can just read the PDF and print out the relevant parts. You don't need the entire thing to... There's some fiction from Tom Church uh, in it, and there's some other, there's a scenario in it. Um, so you really don't need the entire thing if you just want to run a, your own version of it, so... Now you've also you've got another game in the works. You just started a Kickstarter um, as of yes. the recording of this podcast, just a few hours earlier, right? Yes. Tell us uh, about that one. Uh, it's called Base Raiders uh, Super, and it's about superpowered dungeon crawling. And the basic premise of Base Raiders is, you know, imagine a world of superheroes. 
uh, and villains where they, 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 you know, like Marvel or DC or what have you. And just within one day, all of the major players, all the major heroes and villains just disappear. Now, there's one trope in the superhero genre I love. It's the, the, the idea of the, the hidden base, the, you know, the Batcave, the Fortress of Solitude or Dr. Doom's Castle or Baxter Building or any number of places. Right. And the idea is, um, with all of them gone, all those places, well, they, that sounds like a dungeon, doesn't it? So a whole group of people, a whole class of people arise to just loot those hidden bases to find them and take, you know, the treasures out of them. So that's the idea of superpowered dungeon crawling. People that figure out ways to give themselves superpowers, um, and then go out and loot the bases for fun and profit. And uh, the Kickstarter describes it in a lot more detail. Uh, it's based on the Fate RPG system, which Spirit of the Century, D- Dresden Files. Uh, there's a Kerberos Club. There's a few other. There's a lot of games using it now. And it's supposed to. Uh, um, it's not going to be, there's also going to be conversion guides if we reach certain stretch goals so you could run it and some masterminds or whatever you wanted to. Um, but it's, it's an idea I had when I was running the Heroes of New Arcadia, which is a campaign that's posted on the role-playing RPPR actual play podcast. You can actually listen and see where the ideas come from. Uh, and the, the basic idea came from the idea in all these superhero RPG settings. It's kind of like, what's the point of it? If Superman's around, you can't really do anything. You, right. know, you can't really... Uh, you know, actually save or destroy the world because Superman or Doctor Doom's always going to show up to kick your shit in. So what happens if we all of them disappear, but they leave all the elements of superheroes behind? You know, all the magic sources, all the power, you know, alien technology, all the the super soldier drugs. So that's I I could see it would be a very interesting place to uh, adventure in. So. That's the basic idea behind it, and you can get the PDF for fifteen bucks, or you get the uh, print copy for thirty bucks. And we have several stretch goals, so it should be fun. And I'm hoping you guys <laughs> support it. We it's will. It's my most ambitious uh, project yet. It uh, it looks really good. Who did the art? I got several artists. Uh, if you look through it, um, the artist who did the uh, the front cover that you're seeing, the color picture that are using, yes. was Ian McLean or Ian McLean. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing it exactly right. He is a freelancer who has a very good portfolio. And he's actually not the first artist I contacted. The reason I was actually meant to get this out uh, months earlier, but the first <laughs> artist I hired uh, actually just said, well, I, you know, I kept giving him time to work on it. And then he uh, basically kind of dropped out on me. He's like, well, I'm working two jobs, can't do this. So I had to find another person. And uh, fortunately, I did. Uh, it was quite uh, frustrating, but I'm really, really glad I got him. Uh, I got Ian. Uh, here's his website. I'll, I'm sure you can post a link uh, so you can see some of his other work. This is is not his first RPG work. Okay. But he's a very talented artist, and I'm I'm glad I I got in touch with him. Uh, he's got a very clean style, and uh, for me, like on his portfolio, you can see on the pen ink say, uh, page, you can see pictures he did of people fighting zombies, and that was pretty much an instant sell for me. Oh yeah, it, uh, I will definitely put a link to the show notes. There's a lot of good stuff on here. Yeah. Just on the first page, I didn't even go anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> So I was I was pretty much sold on that. So I was really lucky to find him. Uh, but we're going to be getting another artist too. Uh, the I haven't. That's one of the main things I haven't been able to commission much artwork or very little uh, because you know art takes money and that's 
uh, that kind of adds up after a while. So yeah, that's I was gonna I was gonna say, how tough is it for you? Um, obviously, you can do the writing, you can do the, the system work, you can do even the pitch work and whatnot because you have a social medium like a podcast yourself. Yeah, but how tough is it for you to find an artist? Finding artists is a tricky is a tricky business. Um, I, well, another thing I can do the graphic design too. I actually laid out my previous book, Zombies of the World, okay. myself. So I can I actually I can and I can do the pre press work. Uh, so I'm really fortunate that I, I figure out how to do that. But uh, finding artists can be very very tricky online. Uh, there are great, good places to look for them, like conceptart.org. Uh, there's a help wanted message board there, but it's you know you, you're 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 talking to somebody you've never met in real life, and you, you're just kind of trusting. That they're going to be professional, and and for, I've been very fortunate that I've had very few bad experiences, except for the artist I just mentioned. Um, pretty much everybody else I've worked with has been pretty good about this. Of course, you always have delays. You know, arts most freelance artists are doing this part time, so you know, real life gets in the way of that, and. You just kind of have to look at their portfolio, email them, see what they're like, and just kind of go back and forth. It's collaborating on creative products over the internet is is kind of a you can't push people too hard, you can't be too soft. It, you you can't you want their input, but you you have to have, maintain your own vision. It's you have to walk a, a pretty fine line. You can't go too far in any one direction, or you'll lose. You know their project will suffer for it. Hmm. That well, makes sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. That's um, it's good advice for someone who's getting into game design. Did you have anything else you wanted to pitch? Uh, Base Raiders is it. I really want that to work. Okay. Uh, please, please uh, uh, tell your friends about it uh, and uh, pitch in for a PDF or a book. Uh, this is my most ambitious project yet so far. So the, our goal is six thousand uh, dollars. And if we, but there, I have a lot of stretch goals, and I really would like to hit some of them because I think the book will really shine if I can. If we can get to higher funding levels, you know, we'll have the conversion guides. At seven thousand dollars and nine thousand dollars, and then we can get more chapters in the book. We can get more adventures in the book. So uh, you hit you hit Savage Worlds at nine thousand dollars, I think. Yeah, was. Um, that's a big one. Yeah, and then uh, just new bases in the book. You know, adventure more content in the book than we than at like higher levels. Uh, one of the things I really like to do is twenty one thousand dollars is a comic book. Um, I have a comic book outline that I would really like to. But those are expensive, and um, I would really like to see uh, bring it to life. I'd like to. I think a comic will help make people understand the setting, and uh, help. I don't know. I, I really want to try it out. So it's a superhero game. I think a comic book. Yeah, comic book fits natural, beautifully. Yeah, <laughs> with what I'm so, saying. So, uh, and that'll be free to everybody if you get that. You know, you'll get the. The digital version will be for everybody, and you can get the print comic for like five bucks, you know, because uh, there's print-on-demand comic books. So I'm really hoping we can get theirs, but we'll we'll see. I think I think you're gonna make it. It, <laughs> it are it looks like a good project. I want one. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. So Ross, I've I've got my own podcast, obviously, and yeah. uh, lately we've been doing a setting piece uh, where we break down a setting, whether it's sci-fi or fantasy or whatever. And uh, obviously, it's October. We were thinking about doing horror. And the first thing that came to mind was maybe I could get Ross Payton on the show. Your actual plays, you run fantastic horror games. Thank you. Um, we just posted one. Um, I don't know if you saw it called in, the first part of a, a multi-part scenario called Invasive Procedures, which is set in the hospital. Uh, the adventure itself is already published uh, from Pelgrim Press. And it won. It was a nominee for best adventure uh, at this year's Ennies, and I think it deserved. I mean, it was. It's an amazing adventure. It's in, incredibly freaky. Anyway, so yeah, I, I love horror and horror scenarios. All right. So since we weren't able to uh, get you on the show with my guys, 
Uh, I figure we'd just pull it in one-on-one. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you, how do you effectively run a horror game? Well, there there's different type. One thing to keep in mind is that there's different types of horror scenarios. Uh, I think the biggest two categories you could you could sort uh, horror adventures into are mystery versus survival and there those there's there's a import and you can sort of mix and match it to a certain point but those are the two kind of things that are useful to think about right uh you know most call cthulhu scenarios are mysteries and they are about figuring out some sort of secret some sort of uh well mystery for <laughs> lack of a better right. word uh but in survival horror it's not so much of a mystery it's uh not dying it's understand it's 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 a visceral thing so the the first thing you know i would keep in mind is figure out what type of adventure you're running and then figure out what the pacing is for that uh because because horror is is very much about rhythm and pacing uh much more than any other scenario type that's why it's hard to get right you need to be able to lay it on thick when you need to be able to hammer the players down but you need to give them space to breathe as well because if it's just constant constant uh, attacking and right. being tormented and being drained of hit points and sanity yeah, well, it, it, players get numb to them. They just give up. Or, and obviously you don't want the reverse where there's no significant challenge because then the players will just, you know. You wind up with tentacle really jokes and Scooby-Doo effect. Right, yeah, that's another thing. You know, you, there's a lot of table stuff you need to do just outside of the game itself. Like, make sure the players know to keep table chatter to a minimum, cell phone screwing around. Uh, that kind of thing because you need to, because it's a, a lot of it is about immersion, getting the players involved in it. It, it, it's got a higher, that's the thing about horror, it's got a higher bar to really do right than I think than other scenarios. Action is, you know, pretty easy because if you can have one moment where the player kicks ass or there's something really dramatic, I think that most players are satisfied with that. But with horror, it's the thing, it, it's sort of the weakest element they'll think about. So if they right. think about the, the time that, it, you know, someone made a fart joke inappropriately and everybody laughed, they're just kind of like, eh, you know, it, you kill the mood. Right. Shattering, so, shattering your immersion there. So, uh, so the first thing is figuring out what type of adventure you want to run, and that will inform how you want to pace it. You know, for a mystery, generally you want to do it slower, but constantly building up. You know, you're building up to a crescendo where the players get more and more information, and it gets more and more worse. So it's just this gradual curve upwards in terms of tension and suspense and, and fear. And then once they 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 have this realization. Then there's this dramatic moment where they have to confront what the you know the ramifications of this mystery. Oh, we find out that the butler's a vampire, and we have to go kill him. Well, no, he could be anywhere in this mansion. He's the only one who knows how it works. And there's all these secret passages. So that's you know the the dramatic confrontation there. Or, but with survival horror, you can you have to really start out just hook them from the beginning. Just have something really terrifying from the start, and just freak them out, and then you can lay back. And every time they get comfortable, you hit them again. Okay. You have to be sort of un- about it's about unpredictability and just the idea that you could get killed or maimed at any time. And so, like the classic survival horror game is like the zombie apocalypse. You don't. There's no mystery there. Yep, zombies. Right. You know, zombie ga- zombie stories are seldom about figuring out where the zombies came from or what caused them. I mean, that's kind of like you know missing the point of the zombie genre. It's all about. Oh shit, how do we get out of here? How do we kill them all? How do we get to the people we care about? You know, and so you start out with the zombies attacking, players get away, they have a chance to figure out a plan, they go in and try the plan, shit gets bad, they get, you know, they fall back or they find some new place to rest or they get an ally who helps them out, and then, you know, 
rinse and repeat. And then, of course, but the the thing about survival, you have to go the 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 drops down to the scary parts have to be more and more intense. You can't you can't if you start out with a mob scene where people are getting ripped apart, you can't then go to a single zombie attacking them. That's that's not going to be very scary. Unless it's a sing- it's unless it's like a boss zombie, you know, right. like a uh, tank from Left 4 Dead, uh, and then the the rests and the nice, you know, the times where they can recover have to be fewer and far between, and there should be some times when that safety is violated, right? Um, as again, as you build to a crescendo, so there are similarities between them, that sort of gradual rising of tension and suspense and that kind of thing, but how, the exact formula varies on what the scenario is. So that's that's my first sort of overall advice. That's a good one. You, you hit on a lot of really good points there. Let's back up just a little bit. We'll go with um, the player immersion, player buy-in. What do you do to promote that? I mean, obviously There's... you got to have a good group of guys around the table. You know, yes. That goes without, without saying. Yeah, I, that's one of the things success, key to success as a pocket for RPPRs is that I've been really lucky to find a really good group of players, and they can they're really good about playing uh, new characters. Um, you know, it depends on what you're wanting to do. If you're doing a one-shot, good pre-generated characters, like the one scenario I just mentioned earlier, Invasive Procedures, right. there's pre-generated characters in it. They all have a neat little write-up. It's all just on one page, but there's enough there that the players just develop their own stick. You know, the Grizzled X cop, the player just lo- ran with that. Okay. And then the the other person uh, who was the Amnesiac, she, uh, that was Tom, actually. He was very, very sort of quiet and just... Set you know acted appropriately for it, so the players really got into that. So that that the if you have a good group, you're you're halfway there. But right. for me, it's all about the cheap tricks, and <laughs> so like you know, a, a cheap theatrics can go a long way. You don't have to go overboard, but just slamming your hand on the table, okay. or you know, to represent some monster at the door, or just a steady you know rap 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 on the table to you know someone's approaching you. Uh, that can go a long way or changes of your voice or changing lighting, you know, dimming some of the lights, uh, that kind of thing. Um, that can really help. Another thing again is just before you even start the game, just make sure nobody's eating, you know, wait till everybody, if like, I don't know what your group does, but a lot of people, we start around dinner time, around six o'clock. So some people come in, they're bringing in takeout. Right. And so I just let them finish before I start. You know, I don't, I don't begrudge them. I don't tell them to hurry up, but I'm just, you know, while they're eating cashew chicken, I'm just like, yeah, all right. Cause <laughs> you know, I let them have snacks or whatever, but you know that, or I don't, <laughs> I let them, I don't say That's no. That's very nice of you, Ross. Yeah. I'm not, well, I'm not, I'm not that kind of GM, <laughs> but where I'm just like, yeah, I must control everything. Um, and then I think so that, so that, so that goes, that goes a long ways too. Um, Another thing is just to keep the descriptions up and make sure that they're immersed. Keep, you know, basic GMing, you know, keep, try to, uh, you can't describe every single detail of every single room or everything, but try to put something into everything and make every, make everything evocative of what kind of theme you want to do. If you're doing sort of a Victorian kind of Edgar Allan Poe tragic house, you know, the fall of the house of usher kind of thing, describe things as they're falling apart, the rust, you know, on the on the metal on the on the gate as they walk by. So concentrate or, on uh, your scene setting and set dressing. Yeah, um, that would be a way of putting it. I mean, it, it you know, a little goes a long ways, but be attentive to that kind of thing. You know, with the hospital, 
Uh, I just described it as, you know, it, it, the scenario does a great job because it describes what it is. And it's just this falling apart building with a bad history, uh, with a history of ghosts. And, you know, the, one of the nurses is a horrible, horrible nurse ratchet kind of figure. Right. And the other nurses are just half trained or overworked and distressed. And the doctor that they see has all these weird books in his office and you don't, I just kind of mention them, but you know, there's like, why does he have that stuff in there? Well, maybe that's a red herring. I don't know. <laughs> and then there's a creepy little girl there who says things that are slightly <laughs> off in the, from the children's ward. Uh, Cause of course there's a children's ward. You know, right. it's, a, it's a horror game in a hospital. How could there not be? <laughs> I think those are kind of your basic ingredients uh, for it. Okay. So for player immersion and player buy-in, keep them guessing, keep them informed, but keep, keep them guessing. How about that? I think, yeah, the main thing with the set dressing and the, the, the scenery is, again, make, focus on the emotional thematic elements. You know, don't describe it in exacting detail, but emphasize the elements that are consistent with what you're trying to get across. If you're trying to describe, reduce, you know, a zombie survival horror game, describe the smell of blood in the air or describe, you know, the stench of rot or the unnatural motion of the of the zombie as it you know staggers towards you right. uh, or just some odd detail like his belt's halfway off you can hear the belt buckle jangle as it bounces off the asphalt you know just some w- weird little detail and they'll picture that you know the zombie with the belt half off and just ding 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 and they're just like <laughs> oh shit so you know something it's it's just something that's novel and kind of quirky and uh yeah but brings character to whatever it is you might be talking about Exactly. Okay. Uh, another concept you touched on was pacing, which to me, any horror game that I've ever run, pacing is the big obstacle. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you can't have it without the player buy-in. Because if if the buy-in's not there, they're not receptive to your pacing. Yeah. Um, so your pacing is ramping it up, or when you need to, and cutting it back. You, you, you discussed that before. But how do you determine what style of pacing is going to ramp up the stress the most? Well, I mean, again, it kind of depends on the scenario you're, you're you're running. I mean, like for a mystery game, I don't really give them. I try and keep it more consistent, where there's more of this feeling of doom that's approaching them. Like there's a ca- there's a clock that's ticking. They don't they can't see it, but once it hits zeros, they're screwed. So they're sort of this race against time. They have to figure this mystery out, or they're or else you know things will get really bad. So there, I try and. Just gradually, you know, at first, first day of the hospital, everything's fine. Uh, okay, so a crazy guy came in and attacked you. Well, you know, everything <laughs> else is fine. What do you want to do? Oh, yeah, it's, you know, blah, blah, blah. Then the set, you know, after the first night, then the second day, like, yeah, well, things aren't quite as good, are they? You know, and then blah, blah, you know, keep getting. So it's, it's unrelenting, I think, is the word for okay. mystery. That's um, a good one. But you don't want to just, it's, it's a sort of a gradual squeeze. You don't want to like, hammer them so cl- so far unless they really push it i think another thing is make sure the players have a have a chance to that they can do things that it's not a railroad you know like they'll they'll go off in unexpected angles and make sure the like especially in horror more than any other genre the, the adventure comes to them <laughs> you that know? was that was going to be my next uh, my next point is with the unpredictability of your players uh, horror games, it's easy to keep somebody on the rails but yeah. you you want to allow them the freedom to get themselves in deeper trouble, you know, and when the players turn left instead of right and they wind up putting themselves in deeper trouble, Mm -hmm. how much control do you have over the game then at that point? Well, I think the thing is, you know, a lot of the, 
GMs are tempted to like if they go left instead of going right, well then they hit all the zombies. There's a billion zombies and they just die, and that's it. And that's kind of not fun. You yeah, can't just right. like throw yeah, you can't just throw a bunch of extra monsters or make the challenge stupidly hard. I think the thing is, especially in a horror game, you have to let the dice have your say. You have to let the you know if if you're doing a game with unpredict you know random randomization and where you know, I mean if you're doing some diceless game then you can't, but right. you know. And I, I usually play games with dice, you know, some sort of random element to it. So you, you basically what you do is you figure out what the challenge is, and then you just say, okay, you can do this. Uh, roll the dice, you know. If you want to, if you want to go left, well, you have to go through. You have to jump over this pit, and then you have to deal with this thing. So roll the dice, and then if they if they insist on going, let the dice, you know, roll where they may, and make it clear that they're going to die if they <laughs> they screw up. Very 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 uh, you know. sound advice there. Yeah. So, and then the other thing is, you know, if they go left, what happens? Is it just a red herring? Is it just a dead end? Are they going to try and shortcut the adventure and do something unexpected? I mean, that's the that's the main fear you have. You know, red herrings aren't bad, but like, hey, you don't want them to accidentally. So you have to sort of the, for the GM part of the the challenge is writing an adventure that can't be just short circuited. You know, you can't right. just like, oh well, the the mystical amulets in in the uh, hidden room. in the mural, it's <laughs> hidden in the wall behind the you know the kids' ward. So we, if we knock open the wall, we're, we we win. Right. So so there shouldn't be you know invasive procedures is a great way of doing that. You 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 know for one thing, set in this hospital what, during the winter when there's snowstorms and there's no and there's only one phone and the players can't and they've had all their cell phones taken away from them and there's no internet, so they are isolated. And nobody's coming to see them because it's winter and it's cold, and they're you know they can't get they can't drive out there, so um, you know you kind of have to think about that. That would be creepy if there wasn't some nasty stuff going on. Yeah, <laughs> you know. So yeah, another thing is just you know uh, defeating expectations. You want to always defy things. You know, uh, if the players come up with some theory that's incorrect, then you know let them try and. Then they will uh, screw up. You know, they will. You know, one in invasive procedures, the players think, "Well, maybe this guy's behind it," and that that's not necessarily true. You know, they were they 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 were wrong at first, so that kind of that that helps me out because then they they waste time and resources trying to go after this you know dead end. So, you know, a little bit of that goes a long way. Right. So. Okay, you mentioned uh, you mentioned die rolls and randomization a little bit yeah. ago. How do you keep mechanics out of the way of immersion or use them to your advantage? Let me give you an example of, of something that, that I do just regularly. Sure. Uh, let's say a player fails a notice or a spot check. Mm-hmm. Obviously, if they pass the check, I'm going to give them some information that they didn't have before. Yeah. But if they fail a notice or a spot check, then I'll use that opportunity to give them some information about the setting or try to advance the plot or the feel through their failure. You know, they, you, you feel someone watching you. Or, yeah. you know, something along those lines. Um, do you do anything like that in your games? Well, um, or it kind of mechanics depends. get in your way ever? Um, well, you know, do you, are you familiar with the gumshoe system? Uh, yes. Yes. Yeah, that was specifically written to uh, avoid that kind of conundrum. Um, right. And that's what we used for Fear Itself. Uh, the players just spent resources to determine, and they automatically got what was considered the core clues of the scenario, the the minimum information you needed to solve the uh, to to you know solve the mystery, and that's very uh, tricky. What I tend to do is, if I'm not using Gumshoe, is figure out you know what is the essential 
what are the core, the basic things the players need to survive, to win, you know, or to to live, to you know, vi- what are the victory conditions? What are they? What is the minimum they need for that? And then make sure the players can get that, unless you know they're absolutely bone stupid. Like I, you know, I close my eyes, I'd run into the horde of zombies. <laughs> if I can't see them, they can't hurt me. You know, if they if they're like right. that, then you know. But assuming that, then so you figure out what is the absolute minimum and just give that to them. Because honestly, I found you know trying to make the game can you get the thing you need or not it's not as fun as well are you what are you willing to do to to survive so like you know invasive procedures they get the clues but they don't necessarily know what they mean you know they like i i i know as a gm like there's ones like hey there's this place that they kept hearing about in the hospital that was in the abandoned wing and maybe they should go there well i didn't say that but they kept hearing about that place did they go there they waited way too long and it really cost them, uh, I think. And they almost didn't go at all. So that, that, that was pretty bad. So in a game, but in a game like Call of Cthulhu, like for example, and there's a clue that they could get with a spot hidden check, but they don't get it. I usually do one of two things. One, they get it, but then there's some kind of penalty. Like you spot the thing, but you didn't spot the rusty nail. That was right next to it, and you step on the rusty nail. You take one d three damage, and your dex goes down by one. Nice. Or you didn't see the guy sneaking up. You get the clue, but you know a guy sees you doing it, or something like that. Or the second thing is the the clue is harder to interpret. It's not as good, you know. So like they get the book, but it's certain passages are damaged, so they only get the absolute minimum. So like the main thing is the players often need much more than what you consider the absolute minimum in order to solve a scenario. They, right. they need, they sort of, a lot of times they need to be guided by the, uh, the hand, right. <laughs> I think. So the diary that explains the evil plan in excruciating detail is basically just all the exposition they could ever ask for. Then, you know, if they get the clue, if they make their rules and they get critical successes and they're really smart, they get the diary as is. But if they fail, Oh well, that they didn't get to it before the fire started. Right, or the, the cup of coffee yeah. got knocked over. Yeah, the cup of coffee on it, or you know, a guy was shot on it and bled on it, you know, or something like that. So you know, you kind of you kind of figure out how much extra can they. So you always give them the the absolute minimum they need to to win. But the the absolute minimum could also mean you know, for example, uh, they get the clue. But someone's gonna die to get it, you know. They're they're gonna have to face a tough fight to get it. Or like in a zombie survival scenario, maybe there's only enough fuel for the helicopter to carry two people instead of six people. You know, like mm. the more rolls they fail, the fewer people they can carry to safety. You know, they can get to safety, for example. So, and that raises the other thing about horror, which is a lot about is moral dilemmas. Do you go back to rescue the useless NPCs that are other but are innocent, or do you just like screw it? I'm getting out of here. You know, how much danger will you take on for that kind of thing? That's, so that's a good point. That, yeah. So, um, that, so that's some of my thinking. Okay. You mentioned Gumshoe, obviously Call of Cthulhu, but uh, are there any other game systems that work for horror just as is that you don't need to mess with? Um. That you've yeah, tried? I th- I think there's a lot of. Uh, RPG system. I think the Fate RPG can do it. Um, you know, I've been reading a lot about that lately. Um, and I'll be posting some actual plays about that sooner or later. Um, <laughs> we've got it quite a back ways. Uh, the, well, actually, Eclipse Phase, if you're wanting to do science fiction horror, obviously Eclipse Phase is great. Right. Uh, because, I mean, have you, if you've listened to our, the, the campaign I've been posting, uh, No Evil, uh, it goes, it, it, it oscillates wildly between Futurama and Dead Space. 
<laughs> and it, it and that 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 wild shift in tone it actually makes it scarier. Right. Because you know we we've had one scenario, for example, where we're just sort of goofing around on the space station orbiting the moon, and like, oh yeah, we're just you know some political intrigue, some hacking checks, some you know basic stuff, you know basic sci-fi adventuring stuff, and then we figure out, oh, so and so, this person we're trying to find, or that's our lead on this mystery, it went to the moon surface, went to this place on the moon. And we go there and we find that, oh, well, she was probably infected by this really nasty technology, this uh, the Titan uh, technology, which is, if you read the setting, is basically really bad stuff. And she walked that way on the moon, on the surface of the moon with no air. Huh. And the footprints are just going, wow, they're going, well, let's follow them. Okay, 100 miles later. Wow. Oh, she dug down. Oh, this is right over an underground railway between two moon cities. Huh. Maybe we should do something about that. So we're like, okay, we'll go. We jump down, guns on, you know, guns at the ready. And we find out she's basically being infected by this horrible alien technology. And she was a beacon to lure other, these just utterly monstrous things like uh, necromorph. They're basically like necromorphs from Dead Space. And we basically stumble into this boss fight where there's this horrible monster burrowing its way from these ruins into the tunnel so it can then attack one of the cities uh, of the moon. And we're just the only people that can stop it. And so we, we didn't have no idea we were going to be having this boss fight. So we, we do. <laughs> and we wind up like one of our players gets killed. Uh, you know, other people are just barely survive. And we have to detonate a nuclear charge in order to cover up our tracks because we're members of a secret conspiracy and they blame that on terrorists. And it's just this huge mess. And we start this day say, Oh yeah, we're just messing around the space. And then we, by the end of it, like, Oh God, what happened? Right. You know, we're just barely surviving. The moon is smoldering. So I think Eclipse Space is obviously a great system to do okay. it. So, um, the world of darkness, obviously. Right. Uh, the unknown armies, uh, which is a, an incredible setting too. Um, what what which one is that? Unknown armies. Don't know it. Uh, it's from Greg Stolze. It's a lesser known system. It's I think it's out of print, and it's basically postmodern magic. Um, and you know, like the the Tim Powers novels, like Declare. And the idea is mm. you're playing this person. Um, uh, the it's sort of more like Hunter S. Thompson and Hellblazer and the Occult. And it's 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 this weird mix, but it really works because you kind of have to uh, it's not like you're a wizard and you cast spells from hells you could be like an uh dipsomancer which is a uh, a magic user who gets his magical energy from alcoholism so like if you drink a rare but it, i mean that sounds funny that but sounds it's fantastic. actually like you have to be it's like the way the game describes it, you have to be a horribly damaged person to be a magician because you're just fucking your life up horribly wow. uh because it's your obsession and the other thing are the archetypes. Like you can be a walking archetype uh, for this person. Like the, the one of them is like the man without a master. And so you're just like the wandering samurai badass kind of thing. And the more you follow that path, the more power you get uh, until you eventually challenge the current man without a master. And if you kill him, then you take his place and you become kind of this immortal transcendent you know, entity. Um, but that's real. You know, everybody else, then other people will be gunning for you. Right. Um, so unknown armies is this really great gem of a system. I will definitely be checking that one out. There's, there's all kinds of unique magical schools. There's that other one. uh, I forgot what it's called, but it's like the magic of place. Uh, you visit landmarks to get 
certain charge, um, like minor amounts of charges. And then if you attack somebody, like the city itself will just reach up and attack that person. Like, you know, bricks will fall from buildings nearby, manhole covers will explode, you know, or, you know, sewage, raw sewage will come out and blast the guy in the face <laughs> if you attack somebody with it. And then there's another one where it's just taking stupid risks. Like the more, if you, it's basically uh, kind of like jackass. Uh, or it's like entropy, Mancy, uh, like entropy, chaos. And the idea is if you risk yourself, you know, a little bit, you get a minor charge. But if you right. like hijack a bus you know, full of kids and just try and, you know, do, jump the bus over a cliff, you know, try and survive that, you get a maximum charge. That's, of course, only if you you can use that charge to then survive the crash. Right. But then, you're, <laughs> you know, you're no, in no real better place. You just survive the crash. And so it's a great system. Uh, there's a great thread on RPG.net. That, or there's probably several versions of, like, Unknown Army-style rumors. And every single one of those is basically a adventure seed in itself. Like, the one I love the most is... You see, uh, you see. There's uh, every time you take a photo of a crowd, there's this guy in the background, and and you know I, I I've been piling up these photos over the years, and I keep seeing them in all the, these crowds in Paris in 1925, in New York in 1930s, and then and, I, and in New York in 1950s. He's always getting closer and closer to the foreground. I think he wants to get out, you know. And the, the idea that there's oh, it's just wow, there's so much, yeah. It's it's a crazy Stephen good, King sounding uh, stuff right there. <laughs> yeah. So unknown armies. Uh if it's out of print, uh you're probably gonna the, I think the PDF you can still get, but it's it's well worth getting. It's a simple system too. It does mage the ascension better than mage the ascension, <laughs> in my opinion. That's funny. Yeah. Now whenever we do these um setting pieces and whatnot for my podcast, mm-hmm. uh we'll draw from popular media and pop culture to give examples to the listeners. Do you have any good examples from popular media or pop culture for uh, inspiration in your horror game? Um, well, I know for me personally, one of the biggest things is uh, the King in Yellow, Carcosa uh, and Haster. Um, the King in Yellow is this 1895 book written by this, well, he never did horror after this. Uh, his name was Robert W. Chambers, and he just wrote the King of Yellow. It was this brilliant, you know, Edwardian uh, horror compilation of stories, and then he just wrote popular fiction for the rest of his life. Hmm. And Lovecraft was like, "Why did you do that?" He called him a fallen titan and everything. <laughs> and so it's public. It's written in 1895, so it's public domain. You can go out and just download it from archive.org or whatever you want, okay. and. Um, it's not too long. Uh, some of the stories, and it comes. The idea is that there's this play, The King in Yellow, that's been banned. It's very decadent, and people who read it tend to go mad. And so, every uh, each of the five stories in this in this anthology all, are all related to it in one way or the others. And it's just inspired uh, a lot of the Cthulhu mythos, obviously, because uh, the Lovecraft references it, and then all the Lovecraft's acolytes, you know, all the other writers influenced by him reference it. Right. And then I'm sure you're aware of Delta Green. Yes. Um, Delta Green, uh, in their second book, Countdown, Delta Green Countdown, mm-hmm. uh, which just came out again on PDF, so you can read it, um, had a whole thing written by uh, John Scott Tynes called the Haster Mythos, and basically distilled the themes of the uh, the King in Yellow 
Carcosa into this perfect form, and I just loved it. And I've been running games based on the, these elements ever since then. One of the first scenarios I, I read for it was called Night Floors, and uh, you can get it. It's let's see if I can find it. Um, Night Floors is uh, freely available as a PDF, but it is you. The, the The Delta Green people are investigating this building in a scenario in uh, this yeah set in Manhattan, and uh, this painter in an apartment building goes missing, and then they realize there's something about this building. People change when it's at night. And it's just this surreal horror scenario. It was written by Dennis Detwiller. And it's like the players, it has all this list of encounters that are just like bizarre and unexplainable. And one of them is like the players uh, reach into a hole in the wall. They, they feel something cold and hard. They pull it out and it's a gold metal replica of a goldfish, you know, pure okay. gold. And then, so they put in their evidence, you know, they, they collect it, and then later on they pull it out, it's a live goldfish, huh. you know. <laughs> it's just like, how does the fuck did that happen? It's just right. weird. And then, like, they hear a couple arguing in an apartment. They open the door, and there's just a statue of a man and a woman. There's nothing else in there, you know. And the idea is the players, are as they get further, trying to figure out what this mystery is, they get the things get more and more surreal until they're finally no longer in New York. They're in Carcosa, which is this fantastic city in another universe. And they've been dragged into the, 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 the King in yellow. Uh, they've been dragged into this play, this alternate reality. So the idea is you cannot solve the mystery. If you try to solve the mystery, it traps you. So trying to understand it at all is actually how you lose to this um, threat. So the only the only winning move is basically burn the building down, <laughs> you know, evict evict everybody and condemn the building and just give up. Like you're never going to understand it. And I thought that was great. So I tried. I've run several scenarios based on this idea of like haunted, like basically what I call architectural horror. Like uh, um, on our, so you can see them on RPBR actual play. And there's one called uh, Night Mall, where the idea is the players are all. Delta Green agents, and they've all been assigned to be guards at this shopping mall. And but they have tactical body armor. They have M16s. They have machine guns, automatic shotguns. You know whatever guns they want. And but the mall itself, you know, so at first they're like, "Oh wow, this is great, this is awesome. We get whatever guns we want. Oh cool." And wait, why are we guarding the mall? That's kind of <laughs> seems kind of weird. And then the weird things start happening in the mall, you know, and it gets weirder and weirder until they realize they're in, they've already been in Carcosa for a while, and their only way out is to you know reject it and try and go back to reality, uh, or they can stay there and be ultimate badasses forever. So uh, that was fun. I've run that scenario a bunch of times, and then there was another one uh, where it's same thing except they're they're just normal people and they're in a hotel, and the hotel is just goes full-blown shining overlook hotel crazy shit happening um so that's my personal favorite i think the uh the idea of horror that isn't based on a person but on a place and just the idea of a place being wrong and sort of a more modern postmodern look on haunted places haunted buildings haunted houses whatever you want you know, that, that's that's uh, amazing i had um i had some questions written down i wasn't sure how i was gonna fit this one in <laughs> And it sure. was, uh, what's your favorite locale for a horror game? Oh, <laughs> man. <laughs> so that's great. Yeah. 
my favorite hotel locale for a horror game actually uh, would be the more it'd be places that are I, I kind of think are more invisible. Like, I mean, it's very easy to do something in you know a giant sprawling mansion, you know, right. Winchester Mansion or someplace like that, or or in a cave or in a shop or you know even a mall. Um, if you have zombies and stuff like that, that's kind of right. Normal, uh, almost for a horror game, but uh, I think places that are kind of bland or unassuming or people we don't think about uh, are more interesting. Uh, the idea that uh, any place can be horrific uh, if the right things happen to it, or it, you know, if you look at it wrong, or if you just fall on if there's some malign, you know, the, the idea that there's evil lurking underneath us at all times. Uh, we're just not aware of it. Uh, is something I, I find quite interesting. And so that's sort of what I've been thinking of. Uh, I read a, and of, well, the other place on the flip side of that are really exotic places. And in particular, basically anything military cold war architecture, sort of bleak totalitarian uh, structures or, just overwhelming, you know, massive civic engineering projects. Uh, they're, you know, bunkers. You know, those, you know, those towns that they build in order to test nuclear missiles to see right. what they were like. Um, I actually use that in a game, in another Carcosa theme game, or something like that. And so, sort of extremes: either extremely mundane, extremely familiar, or extremely foreboding and modernist. I think going back to the past is kind of cliche now i think the scariest shit is the stuff we're building right now you know the giant you know skyscrapers right. we're building or the massive civic engineering project we're not even aware of um if you look at, like the tokyo can system which is like this tsunami here yeah, i sent a wikipedia article there's this massive uh water infrastructure system near tokyo to absorb all the water for tsunami hits uh, Tokyo, and if you look at it, you just look at this massive thing. It's just a sci-fi-looking place, you know. These pillars and the these massive underground structures, and I'm just like, wow, that's a good place for a game. <laughs> wow, yeah. Uh, link in the show notes for that one for sure. That uh, that doesn't even look real. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that like, really does not even look like a real place. There's there's one like for so for what I do for like influence and for for getting ideas. Um, I subscribe to architecture and design blogs. Like one of my favorite blogs is Building Blog. Brilliant. Um, huh? Brilliant. Okay, <laughs> so you're you're aware of them? Uh, no, uh, I'm, I have I've, I've never used it. I'm just saying that's a brilliant idea. Never even occurred to me. Yeah, and they talk about all this stuff. Yeah, it's not specifically gaming related, but there's always there's a lot of stuff I just kind of skim through. But there's there's great stuff. Uh, if you just have an eye for it, if you keep it, keep aware of it, for example, building blogs where I found out in South Africa, for example, there's South Africa, there's a lot of mining, obviously, right. Johannesburg, you know, and they have all these mines that they, you know, they shut them down because they're unsafe, but that doesn't stop poor, desperate people from opening those mines back up. And so they're illegal criminal miners, uh, <laughs> and they're mining under the city to get whatever kind of, you know, platinum or diamonds or whatever they can find down there and the thing is here's the craziest part the police have a unit that is specialized in going down and shutting down these illegal mines because they have to because you know if the, the, these people running these mines could you know collapse, collapse yeah you know, you know they're, they're danger to themselves and others so the police i mean can you imagine how horrific that would be having some sort of gunfight in a mine underneath the city you know how insanely dangerous that is with some people uh, who apparently don't have anything left to lose 
Yeah, exactly. They just <laughs> live down there. Yeah, because yeah, exactly. And the police then they have to go down there and um, deal with that. So it's just like a steampunk dystopia, just for real. Uh, I am um, quite certain that um, you have made at least five or six people's campaigns <laughs> just on this episode alone. There's been some great stories so <laughs> but, far. You know, there's well, one last thing. Um, somewhere in Building Blog, I, I heard about. In the Cold War, another you know, like go back to the Cold War, the, in uh, Greenland, the U.S. Army built this early warning radar system in the ice, where they had a uh, just a military base. Here it is, uh, Project Iceworm, and it was a city under the ice, according to the U.S. Army, a nuclear-powered research center built by the Army Corps of Engineers under the icy surface of Greenland. Even has own mobile nuclear reactor. Wow. And, yeah. Exactly. I mean, they shut it down, obviously, but like <laughs> the fact that it exists. <laughs> yeah, somebody built that already once. Oh, and they have a map for it too. Yeah. They have a whole map of it. Oh, maybe you scroll down a little bit. Yep. So there's yeah, there's like a whole mini campaign right there. You're just like yeah, the thing, but there instead of the other place. Right. You know. <laughs> or, Jesus. Yeah. Just add thing. You know, add whatever you want to zombies. You know, vampire. Could be any, oh man, vampire would be nasty. You know, yeah. people disappearing one by one. Who's a vampire? Long cold <laughs> nights there. That's so. fantastic. Um, did you have anything else you wanted to add to that? Um, and that's kind of my pet thing with horror. I mean, if you give me like I like, and I could just go on and on and right. on about. It. Uh, <laughs> there's any sort of trends? I mean, was there anything about horror that interests you that you you want my input on or anything? Or like, what are you thinking for horror lately? Um. I haven't been doing a lot of horror lately because my gaming group has been my kids. Ah. So we've been playing a lot of fantasy and a lot of more lighter lighter end games and whatnot. It's tough to get the buy-in without just you scaring the bejesus out of them. And other childish things or little fears? Little fears. Um, I haven't messed with monsters and other childish things yet. Uh, there was another one. Uh, what is it? Grim? Oh, yeah, Grim. I haven't played that. I played the other two. I just uh. I just recently got a hold of it, so I'm going to look into it. If you want to do like sort of a horror light thing, um, have you heard of the video game Costume Quest? No. Um, it, came, it came from Double Fine. Uh, same people did, you know, Psychonauts um, and a bunch of other great games. And the basic premise is like goblins steal your sibling on Halloween night, and you have to go rescue your sibling. And in order to fight them, you you turn into your costume whenever you fight the monsters. So, like, if you're wearing a robot costume, you become a robot to fight those huh. those goblins. And you can switch out costumes. You can get friends, and it's very typical RPG kind of, you know, right. tropes. So, um, if you didn't want to go, like, full-brown horror, just kind of have a horror-themed fantasy game, that could be a good premise for one. You're, you, yeah, so. That's I pretty cool. Uh, that would be very easy to do with monsters or other childish things. Instead of, like, the basic premise for monsters, obviously, is that your kid with a monster friend. Right. But instead of having a kid and a monster friend, you just turn into your monster and you can swip, swap them out whenever you fight the mon- whenever you fight other monsters, you know, i.e. the goblins. Um, it'd probably be pretty easy to do in Little Fears too. I'm not as familiar with that system though. I've only played it a few times. Yeah. So that's that's a thought. If you wanted to like have your kids play a Halloween themed fantasy game. Um, if you wanted to teach them a new system, but not a not a bad idea. We um I guess uh last year maybe? We were playing, and we just take, took their characters. We were playing Dungeons & Dragons at the time, and we just literally took their characters, and I threw them into a creepy little town, and basically what it was is 
the town was ran by just little kids. And I was putting in cameos of all the creepy little kids from pop culture, like Wednesday and Pugsley Adams and like nice. the children of the corn. And, uh, they missed a lot of the references, but, yeah. uh, I actually had, uh, their uncle around the table. He was sitting with them too, and he was catching them and he's getting pretty creeped out. Uh, and when, when the sun went down, it was basically a zombie game. It, everything turned to zombies and whatnot, and they just had to survive till the dawn. And they right. had a lot of fun with that. So I could see something like that working. Working nice. uh, with with my guys, they the uh, they really enjoyed the silly little creepy kid zombie city. <laughs> <laughs> I that's a good idea. I like that. Uh, yeah, you don't have to go full blown, you know, Clive Barker for right, horror. Right, a little can go a long way, especially you know some play some people don't like horror as much, you know. Um, so yeah, it all depends on your group's premise or uh, preferences. So. Tons and tons of fun there. Yep. So Ross, uh, I really appreciate you talking to us tonight uh why don't we go back over how we can reach you zombies of the world you've got zombies of the world.com right yes and that book can be purchased for 3.99 on pdf or 16.95 on paperback yes uh with free shipping in the u.s nice uh, and if you send me a message uh you can i'll autograph it uh and i i will ship internationally too uh just you know plus seven dollars for canada plus ten for international so yeah that that's it's it's out there right so. <laughs> <laughs> and um the big thing right now is you've got base raider starting up in kickstarter yes uh it is a uh, brand new kickstarter as we're talking about uh it ends uh november 24th but i do have a lot of stretch grade the minimum goal is six thousand dollars but we have quite a few some stretch goals and if we reach those i have some more planned so uh we'll see how you guys uh, how how much interest there is in this idea uh, for a game, right? And uh, if this is a standalone game, or this will be one with a lot of what do you call it support, yeah. We'll see how that goes. And yeah, okay. Uh, obviously, role playing public radio and uh, role playing public radio actual play. Uh, you can yep. find those and uh, unspeakable. Yes, unspeakable. Uh, we're going to be recording new episodes, and we don't do unspeakable's not pretty much more sporadic because yeah. of the uh, um. That's more Shane asked me when he, you know, he's the one who uh, is ultimately in charge. I do all the technical work, but he's the one who who sets the agenda. And there, it's a quarterly magazine, anyways. Okay. We only do, but the episodes are longer too. Where they're like two, three hours long. So uh, we have some actual plays on there too. Actually, uh, Tom actually ran a World War Two. Well, German saboteurs in America during World War Two game. Uh, four parts that's on unspeakable. So if you're a big actual play fiend. There's a there's a whole incident in there called we've we've come to call the dog punching incident <laughs> uh, where we're playing Germans we talked about this in RPPR but the the gist of it was you know one thing we talk about is player logic the idea that player I'm sure you're aware of this as well you know the players just come up with the weirdest ideas and then just follow through on them that, right. you know and so they're playing German saboteur saboteurs and like two of the players are basically their mission is to kidnap this guy. And this guy is an FBI, a retired FBI agent. He might know some things that they want to know. So, you know, pretty simple, pretty, pretty standard so far. So they, they scope him out. They figure out where he is. Uh, they go to his neighborhood. It's just, you know, nice middle-class neighborhood. Uh, he's at his house and it's broad daylight. And so in order to try and, you know, case him a little more, one of the players gets a, poses as a door-to-door salesman while the other player 
tries to sneak around back. The other player doesn't have a sneak hiding skill, right? Or the the so he fails his check. The other play the the NPC is like, "What? Hey, what's going on? What's all this stuff?" And they they fail their fast talk checks. They fail all their social stuff checks, <laughs> and the player at the door just says, "Fuck it, I'm punching him." So he knocks him out. You know, punching him. This is broad daylight, by the way. Right. And then <laughs> they realize he has two German shepherds as dogs, and he just attacked their master. So the dogs start attacking him, and he has no. He, if he he has a gun, but you know, like right. that's going to cause a lot of noise. So he tries to punch the dogs, and he keeps <laughs> failing his jack. His skill is fifty percent, by the way. But and he has got. He's a big guy. He can knock a dog out in like two punches, but he keeps missing all the attack rolls. The dog. <laughs> are just systematically tearing him up, just ripping him into pieces. And finally, the other player comes back, and the neighbor's this like, oh, he he crits his fast talk check to keep the neighbor at bay. But then the dogs knock the first guy, the first player out. So the second player says, "Fuck it, I just take out my gun and shoot the dogs." <laughs> and he shoots the dogs, wakes the player up with first aid, and they pick the guy up, throw him in the trunk, and then just drive off in broad daylight. So much for subtle. <laughs> it was. I was just amazed that Aaron let them like not get immediately arrested for that. I'm just <laughs> surprised he let them go. But yeah, that's that. So that's the dog punching incident. So that's my favorite bit of the unspeakable actual play. So, anyways, pretty funny. Um, yeah. Sorry, I'm going tangents. Oh, it's all right. Bring them on. Yep. <laughs> Speaking of actual plays, you uh, you have a player Thad who had left for a while. He's going to be joining one of your actual plays coming up soon, right? Yes, he actually moved to China to teach English to Chinese students in uh, this university in uh, Chengdu, uh, China. But he is going to be Skyping, and we're going to be doing a one-shot next week, the 26th, that I'll try and get up online pretty shortly afterwards, uh, where he's going to be – it's going to be based uh, and on – this is the thing I'd like to promote, uh, obviously, aside from Israel, is the SCP Foundation, uh, scp-wiki.net. Um, the S- uh, SCP stands for to secure, contain, and protect. And the idea is that there's this crowd-written uh, wiki where people write up these crazy and bizarre and insane and evil artifacts and objects and creatures. And this foundation is trying to house them. It's a prison for these things. And so my scenario is the players are all agents for the foundation. They're trying to research this artifact and try and figure out what it is and what it does and what kind of threat it poses to them. And what I love about this website, about the wiki is, and that's going to be their supervisor who's monitoring, monitoring them from offsite. Okay. That, that explains why he's Skyping in. And so I'm going to give Thad a briefing and then Thad will choose what he briefs the players on. So that will be, the the gimmick for this game for having one player Skype in so we'll see how well this goes uh, so I have a lot of uh, writing to do to figure to get all I haven't figured it out I just need to type it up let me uh yeah. I'm, I'm actually looking at the website the SCP Foundation classified material beyond this point unauthorized access will be monitored located and dealt with this is your sole warning first thing yeah. you see on the site so. Uh, let me show you the first one. This started actually from for, from a post on 4chan, uh, believe it or not, and it started with SCP-173, and it's written. All of the posts are written in this sort of bureaucratic style uh, that ex, it explains their payment procedures, and it's it's the idea. It's describing this cr- strange creature, this constructional. Cr- 
concrete and rebarb. Uh, the object cannot move while within a direct line of sight. So it's just this idea that there's this weird thing and you have to keep an eye on it. And so if you like go to the top rated pages, you can see the ones that are considered sort of the best of the site. Right. Uh, and you can get a sense of what they find creepy. And there's just all kinds of really good ideas for games and you know, there's uh, one of them is uh, sort of a king and yell kind of thing. We'll see if I can find it. And then, yeah, so they, everything's written in this bureaucratic procedure format, and everything is very creepy and very postmodern, I guess, kind of like things that doesn't make sense. It doesn't right. really follow any sort of known precedence. Um, so I find it really interesting, uh, and I think there's a ton of good material uh, for it. So I'm going to try and add on to it, and we'll see how well that goes. Cool. <laughs> uh, but I'll add it on to the RPPR Actual Play podcast, and then you can write it up yourself and see how well it goes for your group. See if you can do better from our players after we get it all on. So, but that the foundation itself, even if you don't listen to our actual play, just go there. Right. Every single one of the top-rated ones is a great idea for a horror scenario. If you, so if you're stuck on an idea for a horror scenario, go there. You will not be disappointed. There is so much creepy shit there. It is ridiculous. Yeah, I don't even know what to say about it. I've just been kind of fiddling through it while you were going on there for yeah. a minute. Wow. I just Definitely going to be leaking the show notes uh, for everything that we've talked about. Ross, you've been extremely helpful on uh, giving us some advice on horror gaming. I really appreciate it. Thank you. With that, I'm going to go ahead and call the interview here. This is the section where I normally do a support section, support the hobby, support the industry, and support your local game store. Ross, you supported the SCP Foundation. Yes. We appreciate that. And thanks for coming out with us tonight, Ross. Yes. Have a good night. Thank you. The Carpe Diem Gamecast is presented under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License Version 3.0. For further discussion on this topic or just about anything else, join our forum at carpegm.net slash forum. To contact us with questions, comments, and other feedback, please send your emails to dan at carpegm.net. We'd love to hear from you. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook slash carpegm.net or follow us on Twitter at C-A-R-P-E underscore G-M. Thanks for listening. <laughs>